Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the 36th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Emma. Today we've got Justin Johnson, founder of Indie Mogul, a DIY YouTube channel from way back when that has just been reinvented. He's going to talk to us about his passions, why he decided to make Indie Mogul with his partner Eric Beck, and also how he has pivoted into documentary filmmaking. I'm so excited about this episode. I loved Indie Mogul for a long time. I have a hunch that our listeners are big fans as well. If not, by the end of this episode, you will be, and you will definitely check out Indie Mogul. It's another great one. Yeah, Indie Mogul is like a better version of Just Shoot It with video tutorials. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't think they dive that into the career of a director, but they, um, they show you how to make really cool stuff, and it's one of the things that inspired me to feel like I could do it too. And to make this podcast. So yeah. But before we do that, Oren, what have you been working on lately? I have been just finishing up my go 90 show. You know, we did uh, a week of sound mixing, a week of color correction. It's, it's crazy. I mean, it's a lot of work to finish, man. Yeah. I don't know how, how, what percentage of our listeners have been through like a professional sound mix or professional color correction session, but It can drive you insane. Color, as listeners will know, I love. Sound mix, I get pretty bored. At a certain point, I guess I just, I don't think of sound the way an engineer does, you know? So once I've placed all of my cues and moments and there's a general mix, you know, I don't have a ton of input, you know? Oh, weird. I'm the exact opposite. I feel like color, it's like, it, you know, there's only so many things like make it brighter, darker, sure. contrastery, less contrasty. That's Power a little windows, too blue. Though. That's a little too green. Yeah. Power can you windows. make? Can you darken the left side a little yeah, bit? Yeah. You know, sound. You know, in color, you're not really working with many layers. Right. In sound, it's literally hundreds of tracks of audio. Yeah. Music. All the different. You know, your composer gives you the drums separate and the strings separate and all yeah. these things, and then you have your sound effects, and it's like 
somebody like a door opens there's like 18 sound effects and you're like "Mm, something that sounds a little weird about that door i kind of liked how it like sounded better last week and then you go through all the sounds and you're trying to take them out and you can really go rather insane but what's interesting about the sound mix is how many people are actually working on the audio mix of any show so you know it's different at every post house and stuff and depending on your budget but Where, where are you finishing by the way we did it at this place called Monkeyland in Glendale. It's really, really cool, guys. But so we have a person who's just in charge of ambiences and atmospheres. So a lot of our show takes place on a spaceship. So he decides like what the hallways sound like and what the lounge sounds like and what the dorm rooms sound like and what the arena sounds like. And he takes up probably like 12 to 15 tracks of mm-hmm. just room tone you just know like hums beep, and beep, beeps beep, beep, and, like yeah. in the kind of high-tech rooms or and does that winds in the horror type places is that there is there chatter and background noise as well or no so there is so that's a separate person there's the adr person he records everyone and we do these things called loop groups where you bring in like a bunch of actors including my wife and matt's wife actually helped us out yeah and you you watch like a scene and let's say there's like 25 extras in the background of the scene you have your group of like five or six actors just pretend to be those people in the background and just talk about, you know, what like they're walking to the dorm room in the show that I did and other people are talking about strategies to fight. So like, you know, Matt's wife was just like, yeah, and then I'm going to take him. I'm going to shove his head in the, you know, in the wall and I'm going to fight him. And like everyone's just kind of whispering little like fight type right. dialogue. And we do it like three or four times and we move everyone around in the room. So they sound like they're different people. And it's it's really fun, actually. Doing the loop group was actually pretty enjoyable. And so there's a person that just does the loop groups and ADR, which is, you know, recording. Whether If we want to change lines that were recorded, we can do that. Or if something wasn't recorded well, we'll re-record it. And then there is a person that does all the sound design, which is like laser blasters, doors, sound effects, whatever. And then there is a person that does all the foley, which is... Let's say somebody picks up a box or someone is like holding some fabric or something or someone throws something. They they literally recreate it and they record the sound of that. And they're, the thing that they do the most is footsteps. Mm-hmm. Every person in a show usually has footsteps re-recorded. And the reason is because you want to be able to separate the, the footsteps from the dialogue mm-hmm. so that you can dub it into a different language if you need to. And so there's a person that literally is just in charge of all the footsteps for an entire show, which is tough. And then there's the audio mixer, which, and and the composer, obviously, and the audio mixer takes all those things together and we figure out how to balance them. And anyway, it's an interesting experience. I think everyone should go through it to just see how insane it is to finish like even a web series or a little commercial or whatever you're doing. Yeah, it's, that's incredible. I, yeah, I think, um, the Foley is always a thing that's exciting to me. It's like, oh, like, why do we do it that way? Uh, did you ever find yourself using, um, you know, the source audio or was everything 100% fully? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, we used the production audio a lot, which is, you know, the, those don't know the audio that we actually recorded on set. Uh, not too much for footsteps, but for like somebody bangs something on a table or whatever. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll enhance it a little bit, but I love getting the, you know, we talked about this on the show before. I love recording sound effects on set and trying to make everything feel like it really belongs in that room. Natural and organic. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, now I'm like in that phase of like, what's next for me and pitching and just kind of 
doing all that stuff, it's it's really depressing. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I think you you can either end up getting really depressed and like just kind of bum around, and then you wake up and two weeks are gone, and you're like, what did I? Yeah, you know, what I actually took do? a job today that I'm like is the type of job that I promised I would say no to. But it's like it's just a one day shoot. It's like for the NHL awards, Will Arnett is gonna talk to Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, and Conan O'Brien to see if they'll co-host the show with him, and they all turn him down. I'm just doing the part with Jimmy Kimmel where he turns Will Arnett down, and it's like we'll probably get half an hour to shoot, and I have to also be one of the cameramen because yeah, we're yeah. only allowed to have three people, so it's like two cameras and a sound person. Right, and it's like totally the type of job I have zero interest in, but. I would love to have like Will Arnett and Jimmy Kimmel on my reel. So I said yes. And it's like, I have nothing else going on for this week. So anyway, I don't know. I took it, but it's not, doesn't really align with like my career goals. Sure. Anyway, enough about me. I would love to hear <laughs> what you've been up to lately. Uh, yeah, I uh, I just delivered the first draft of a feature that I'd been kind of dragging my feet on for a while and feel it was it was fun you know it was a, a thing where like once you've got a decent outline for your feature a lot of the hard part is over and it's like dialogue comes relatively easily to me so like you know jokes and things like that kind of get to fall into place and you you're discovering things and you're you kind of fall back in love with your your screenplay and that still takes a while right um but then at a certain point it's like you're doing a puzzle and you hit that bit of momentum where there's like oh there's only 20 pieces of this puzzle left then you're just kind of like putting them in one after another and it feels incredible so that that was kind of like uh a week ago maybe and then just like today or yesterday i kind of like cracked it open again and i'd gotten some notes from people and i kind of had realized like oh like i crammed some of those puzzle pieces into spots that they didn't fit you know, so so it's that kind of the wake up call of like, mm, there's still plenty of work to be done on this thing. But I think that there's something to be said about just finishing that first draft because it's it's so much easier to go back in and tweak something and change something and, and or even just throw out an entire like sequence or scene or, or character or whatever it is. But seeing it all as a whole is, is the thing that's the most uh, gratifying and helpful and exciting. Cool. Well, yeah, writing, you are have a much easier time with it than I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I guess I'm lucky in that way. But, you know, it still takes a while. It still f- hurts. You know, it's still, like, painful and hard and icky. But I think the thing that I always have to remind myself of is that if you just um, type, like, literally just typing words, letters, it does not matter if it is comprehensible at all that will slowly evolve into something where you know letters become words become sentences and then eventually something good comes out and the magic of uh writing on a computer is that you can delete all the garbage yeah you know it's all in the rewrite yeah yeah so just just like honestly just type and then some eventually you will have a movie i want to try to write the worst possible version of my movie yeah and then in doing that, fail miserably and make a mas- write a masterpiece. I, You know, a person I was talking to not that long ago told me she will outline, then write the, the TV show in this case, and then go back to the outline and throw away the script and, and rewrite the outline so that it actually works. And she's found the ear for her characters and 
you know, has figured it out for real and then actually write the first draft. And that's how she gets to her first draft, which I don't think most people have to do. But uh, especially if you if you're just kind of like you need it under your fingers, it's better to just like plow through a draft that, you know, you're not ever going to show anyone and then kind of revise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There is there is just no way to crack it aside from just doing it. Yeah, sometimes. Well, uh, Oren, I can't wait to hear what you're going to do next. And in the meantime, let's listen to our conversation with Justin from Indie Mogul. Hey, folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take, and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50 off to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. All right. Hello. Welcome, Justin. How's it going, man? Great. Thanks for coming on the show. I feel like uh, you commented like maybe on our first episode. You were like, oh, that sounds cool. And here we are, 35 episodes later, finally recording. I think oh. maybe before you started, and you're like, we're doing this thing, and I'm like, I want to be involved immediately, and then it took 35 episodes, and then I was involved. I read an article about you that said you had a bot that just says, that sounds cool on every message that you yeah. see. I think that I, if I don't have that, I would like people to believe I do. Okay, cool. <laughs> so welcome, Justin. Um, so tell us a little bit about Indie Mogul. Indie Mogul, yes. Uh, Indie Mogul is a DIY filmmaking network that I co-created with my friend Eric Beck back in 2007 in the dark ages of the internet. I was working for a startup called Next New Networks in New York City, and Next New Networks' goal was to launch 100 branded networks on the internet, like basically like TV networks for niche audiences, over the course of five years. And so I'm not sure exactly. I think we probably launched like 50 or 60, and I was the head of the promos department. But also being one of the very first hires there and also being a filmmaker myself, we were starting all these niche networks. And I'm like, let's start one that is about filmmaking because that's what intrigues me. And why don't we hire my friend Eric, who is a really great builder of puppets and effects and things. Let's hire him to do a show about making movies and building stuff. And that became Backyard Effects, which won Webby's and got all kinds of millions of views and all that stuff. And uh, it continued on from 2007 until just two years ago when we ended up being kind of shut down by YouTube. Uh, so <laughs> we, we were owned by YouTube. That sounds weird. We were owned by YouTube. Uh, we were acquired by them. And then they cut funding to the channel two years ago. And then about six months ago, we heard that they wanted to give it to us for free. That's awesome. And, and yes. now Indie Mogul is back. And you guys have launched a Patreon campaign. You're putting out new videos again. 
life is beautiful. So I feel like you guys were kind of part of this revolution in filmmaking. Yeah, I, I, maybe it goes beyond filmmaking, but I was just talking to this VFX guy that did all kind of an older guy that did all the VFX on the show I just worked on. And he said that in his day, it was like all secrets. Like you wouldn't tell each other how mm-hmm. you did the effects because it took you so long to figure it out. Like that's like why people went right. to you because you knew how to do laser blasters or whatever, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, explosions or whatever. So, it, but like when Andy Mogul and Freddie W and everyone and Andrew Kramer kind of all were starting to teach people online for free how to do all this stuff, it was you know, it was kind of like revolutionary. Like I'm, I didn't go to film school and everything I learned is like from indie mogul and people like that, you know, video copilot, like how to be a filmmaker is that why did you guys, why did you guys start teaching people how to do stuff instead of making your own stuff? Well, one of the big goals of next networks was to create content for underserved audiences. And really at the time in 2007, this is, you know, what now, um, nine years ago, crazy. Uh, there's so much great DIY and educational right. content on YouTube now. But in 2007, that really wasn't the case. It was a lot of dogs on skateboards and mm-hmm. just kind of random Simpsons episodes, random stuff. And so we wanted to create the professional-ish level content that would attract advertisers advertisers that didn't really show up for the next four years which is why the company <laughs> essentially failed yeah. but <laughs> well they did you know, get acquired by U- we got youtube acquired. right yes, so we, that, we, that's ca- pretty good we kept their jobs um and that it's also like it's hard to really explain how early in youtube's history that whole thing was like the even just the idea of like being able to watch videos on the internet was still pretty novel to most people and then i remember because I I started my career right around the same time, I couldn't believe what Next New Networks was doing. It was just so inspiring and incredible that like, oh, these guys are doing real things like across the board in every different vertical that you could think of. They were trying out like how to how to make a show. Like it like it was it was this wild adventure that was really electric for everyone i feel like uh, and and i was uh, the the first creative hire there so i was one of the first people in the door and it was just so i've also for me at that point at 2007 i had already been doing online video for eight years i had started making online video in 1999 2000 and posting videos of me and my friends, essentially vlogs of me and my friends, like going bowling and doing stuff when that was a really weird and scary thing to do. They're like, you're putting your life on the internet. How someone's going to murder you. Yeah, that right. was so for me growing up in a small town in Wisconsin, right. it was my only way of finding an audience. Like my, the pinnacle of like the creative job I really wanted in my small town was like, Oh, I can be a cameraman for the local news local station. News, yeah. I'm like, this is my thing. And so I kind of started from public access and then very quickly discovered the internet and started putting my public access stuff online in the late 90s. And at that time, it's the same as is kind of, I'm really into VR and 360 now. It's a very inconvenient medium that a lot of people can't access. And that's what internet video was back in 2000 was people didn't want to download a 20 meg file for... 30 minutes to watch a two minute clip that looked like garbage. 
people just didn't want to do it. But because it was difficult is why I tried to figure it out. So at even at 2007, I had been doing internet video for a while. And so when I started sourcing friends to work with Next New and to create networks, I was building off the portfolio of people I knew from those past seven years of doing online stuff who are scrappy filmmakers who are still in film school or even younger in high school and just kind of getting into it. And what was really incredible and, and we created that content, uh, the DIY content that really wasn't out there. And now, of course, it's everywhere. But what's been really incredible with the relaunch is that I'm getting, I'm reading these comments. And God, I, I just turned 34. I feel like 50 because I'm reading these comments. And kids are like, oh, I was born in 2000. <laughs> I watched Indie yeah. Mogul when I was eight. And I'm so happy it's back. And I'm like, you're still a baby. And then I do the math and I'm like, this is a 16-year-old. This person is driving. And they watched Mm -hmm. Indie Mogul when they were eight. And what's so awesome, and as uh, to your point, you know, um, being this kind of early first wave of YouTube stuff, Freddie W. watched Indie Mogul. Uh, So many big YouTubers now who are hugely successful, much more successful than Indie Mogul is, but they cut their chops and they learned and they grew up on Indie Mogul, kind of almost like a Saturday morning cartoon show. I remember very clearly watching a behind the scenes like DVD extra for the Sarah Silverman program where Rob Schraub, who's, you know, got his own pedigree of like Channel 101, he created Channel 101 with uh, Dan Harmon and all that stuff. But I remember him watching a tutorial from Backyard Effects of uh, you guys taught people how to melt faces like in Indiana Jones, like with crayons and plaster molding. <laughs> and there's a, there in, if you watch the DVDs of the Sarah Silverman program, I think season two, Rob Schraub is like, yo, my producer said this is too expensive to do. So I watched this internet video and figured out how to do it myself. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? It blew my mind. If your chief skull has missing teeth like mine, just replace them with some plumber's epoxy and paint. The first step is to start filling in certain areas on your skull with cheap red Play-Doh. Focus on the temples, eye sockets, and jaw area. The name of the game for this build is Wax. We're going to be painting on layer upon layer of colored wax to build up a human face. In order to deal with the wax, you'll need a double broiler, which is just a big pot half filled with water with a cook safe bowl inside. Slowly melt down. Yeah, I mean, producers must hate Indie Mogul. <laughs> yeah, because right. when you're like, yeah, I want to blow up this barn. Yeah. Like, you can't do that. Like, yeah, like, did, yeah, it, did it for $28. Look on at Indie these Mogul. dudes on fucking the uh, internet. They got yeah, crayons. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I was just watching that yeah. video a couple hours ago because we're doing a top 50 Indie Mogul moments video. And that's one of them, um, the original face melt effect. But what's so crazy is that the story of that is Rob Shaw basically went to Comedy Central and said, hey, you want to do this effect? And then budgeted it out with a real special effects team. And they were like, we can't afford it. And then they looked on the internet and found any mogul and then melted a bunch of crayons and made this great looking effect. And so, and that was probably 2009. I I don't know. Sarah's vagina is what. Uh, melts her yes. doctor's face. Yeah, it's remember. like a okay. beam of light as she's pregnant. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, she's getting an abortion. Right. My <laughs> wife's uh, OBG. It's the, it's the same. So I feel very lucky to um, to have been a part of so many different people's origin stories. A lot of filmmakers and YouTubers' origin stories. And my temple goal when I first pitched any mogul to my bosses was. I want someday, and it was a big goal, I want someday someone accepting an Oscar to thank Indie Mogul. 
Like that is, is the goal. If they can be like, that was the forget film school or that kind of stuff. Like when they were a kid, they saw that and that's what led them. And it may still be 20 years from now, but I believe that there's a chance that could happen. And I just feel lucky to have been a seed to grow that, that tree. I have a lot of, of different questions, but first of all, how did you guys come up with the crayon melting thing? Like, so basically j- just for those that don't know Indie Mogul that listen to this show, they basically, you know, have tutorials on how to make film effects. Uh, but, but also it's, it's important to say like, oh, they're like fun and entertaining. So I bet there are a, like a cross section of people who aren't ever gonna actually do the tutorial, but still watch the video just because it's like, yeah, but if you care about film at all, you want to me, it's like, you want to know how every single part works. Totally, like when I worked yeah. as a PA, I'd like ask the grips, like, you know what, how, how long can you run this, you know, machine for before right. you have to put gas in it or whatever. It's like, as a filmmaker, you, you want to know you how everything know works, whether yeah. you're doing it or not. And I don't, I think like Indie Mogul kind of uncovered a lot of things and figured out ways to do things for really inexpensive and and also i think the difference was then and to a lesser extent now but especially then most tutorial content was very dry so it was like still pretty dry dry. and even now yes it's like the german guy or like the the swiss (laughs) guy who's like and here's how we do this next step and it's just like a screen capture i'm like a tutorial junkie but so is like my stepdad is like we the other day we wanted to install we installed new tile floors in like my uncle's house and it was like this type of glueless linoleum tile or whatever. And we're just like, you know, go on YouTube and sure, find but videos. All, but it wasn't ever it. funny is the point. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was funny, was but not intentionally. I mean, we had puppets. <laughs> yeah. There was like a spinning wheel that would yeah, determine yeah. the budget. It's it was very, very much a kid yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. But in the same way, we're telling like very stuff that's like allowing kids to kind of hack essentially hack their way to professional level right. effects for ultra low budgets. And it's been really cool to go back and look at some of the old episodes as I'm assembling this this top 55 Indie Mogul Moments video because now it's almost like being from a small town, you go to a big town and you go back to the small town and everything seems smaller. Watching Indie Mogul, I'm like, we really did that effect for 20 bucks? Like, that's crazy. (laughs) Like, it's crazy, crazy cheap. Now that I'm actually a working professional, I know how much things cost. So um, for things like the face melt effect, uh, that's really... Eric has such a brilliant, brilliant mind, and I think he's really special in the fact that uh, Eric is the, the creator of Backyard Effects and the host of the show. He is just able to figure out these really incredible solutions to things that are very, very difficult. And not only that... There, there's a lot of people who are great builders out there, but Eric has this great hybrid of he's great on camera, mm-hmm. very funny, very personable, and also has this incredible mind that can just figure this stuff out. So I'm sure he saw something like the face melt effect and figured out a crayon based way of making it. He's always searching around, finding the information that's conveyed in a boring way, adding his own twist on it, which is always brilliant. And then presenting it in, in an entertaining way, which is more accessible and of course more widely viewed because more people would rather see a thing with puppets and time-lapse and great music than something that's a little more dry and sterile. It's the difference between Mythbusters and like this old house, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Totally. Yes. And And he kind of thinks like an engineer, right? Like he doesn't think like, oh, I wonder how this is traditionally done. He's like, how, what's the easiest way I could figure, like do this? Like, you know, red cameras, like that guy, Jim Gennard, who like started red. He was just like, we have these amazing digital SLR cameras. 
like the Canon 5D, like why can't we just record video with those, you know? And now like all cameras are like based on that CMOS sensor technology or oh, whatever. Wow. But he was the guy, he, you know, he started Oakley, Jim Gennard. Um, he was like that. not a camera guy at all. He liked photography and he really liked his digital cameras, SLR cameras. And he's like, this is like this lens, like no one's ever used. Like before that, we all like used these crazy lens adapters, right? Or oh, I had one. I had a Brevis. or Brevis or <laughs> yep, PS yep. Technic if Brevis you were rich. My, uh, yeah, what was it? My, my little... My little handheld camera. I still like. I still like how that looks. But I, it is. It's true. It was such a hacky, hacky yeah. way of getting yeah, there. Yeah. And so it's like the people that come from the outside, like the Eric's or like the Jim Gennards, that I think figure out like these things that are so obvious to someone on the outside. Right. You know, are, are not so obvious to someone on the inside. And that's why I think a lot of us as filmmakers, when we are like home. Brew right, filmmakers, right. we try to go professional. We have so many problems where we're like, oh, wait, you need insurance? Yeah. And I can't put a camera on a car? Like, there's what's like, the well, big deal? Why, why can't I? You yeah. know, like there, there's always that question. Um, and, and Eric has a, I think he's got a political science degree. <laughs> you know? He's yeah. not, he's, he didn't yeah. go to film school. Yeah, he really yeah. didn't. And, it's and a good time so for brilliant. politics now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, but it's funny because uh, we were talking about this uh, a couple weeks ago. The stuff he learned in political science Actually, a lot of those skills played into he's really great at uh, writing pitches and things like that. And a lot of those same kind of communication skills that you learn Mm -hmm. in political science are the same kind of skills you need when you're writing a pitch for a show. Mm -hmm. How do you communicate this particular concept to this particular audience? How Mm -hmm. do you convey it in a convincing way that will, in the case of politics, make someone vote for you or agree with you? Or in the case of production and directing, make someone write you a check to create the particular content that you want to make. So um, certainly there are correlates there, but Eric is is really uh, someone I met via via the internet. As I feel most most the core of most of the great things in my life come from the internet. Uh, I started a site called FilmFights.com back in 2003, around the exact same time that Channel 101 mm-hmm. launched. And so the idea behind Film Fights was we give people a title, a genre, and a time limit and a deadline. And the filmmakers from all around the world create films based on this sort of criteria. And this is years before YouTube. I really should have started YouTube. I'd have a much fancier (laughs) car. (laughs) But instead, I started Film Fights. And through it, I met people like Eric, who was in California at the time when I was in Wisconsin. Uh, People like Griffin Hammond, who was another host of Indie Mogul, Russell Hasenauer, another host. So many great creative people who were making content in those early, early days who have gone on to continue pursuing that career because if you cared enough to figure out how the hell to get content into your computer in 2003 you probably cared enough to continue with that career now you're like the steve wozniak of youtube indie filmmaking i prefer uh more more of the force gump (laughs) i'm more in like the background of all these incredible events i haven't had my bubble gump shrimp yet i feel like wozniak is pretty background Sure. Turned out. Sure. Sure. (laughs) But he's the one that was like, you know, the tinker. I mean, it seems like from the beginning, you were kind of more obsessed with the craft of filmmaking than film per se. I mean, maybe I love the community of it, you know, and and that's a realization I had as a director. Mm -hmm. Really, it it struck me just probably a year ago. And and I uh, recently completed my first feature film which is documentary which came out in december but for the longest time for 
15 years is I've really been making films ever since I was eight for the longest time. I just thought of myself. I'm just a guy who makes stuff and it's film stuff. And I love making film stuff. And it wasn't until a year ago that I realized I'm uh, an entrepreneur and a documentary filmmaker and really narrative. I, I don't really care about, I don't want, I don't have a great story to tell. I don't have a script I want to write. I don't like directing narrative. And, and when I have, I had this flashback moment where it's like, that's why I didn't care when I make a thing. I'm just like, kind of like, yeah, whatever. I'll do this narrative thing just because I can and I have time. Right. But I really don't but care. You guys about are more it. focused on how to make it than what it and was. The flip side of the coin is Eric, who's who's a really great narrative director. He's got a very specific vision. He pushes the actors to get what he wants. And I'm just a nice guy from Wisconsin. The great thing about documentary filmmaking is you're more of a sponge you're more of a content sponge and you open yourself to the universe of possibilities and the directing really happens for the most part in the edit that's where you craft your story in the edit Mm -hmm. and so that's that kind of inverse of like a great film really should be planned well if you especially don't have a lot of money and don't have a lot of time you have to plan every moment to get the most amount of content that you have to execute on your particular narrative vision and for me i'd more rather be a sponge place myself in a circumstance that will lead to great content be a sponge for that content and then assemble it all in this nice quiet editing dungeon and figure it out there um but it took me a while to have that that kind of realization it's interesting i like i came i used to be an engineer and i came from like a very technical background and so to me, like, I always was really, like, obsessed with, like, steady cams and dollies mm-hmm. and color correction and, you know, digitizing video and all that stuff. And I had to, like, I had this internship. I probably talked about it on this podcast before at this place called Village Roadshow Pictures. They made the, I, I made the Matrix movies and stuff. They're yeah, Village Warner Ro- Brothers. Yeah, I've, I've seen that bumper. Yeah, um, yeah, right. And they had this really interesting program. The head of the program, Fred something or other. He created this list of movies that you must have seen to work in Hollywood. It was like the (laughs) 200 movies you must know to work in Hollywood. Because what if you're in a pitch room and someone's like, oh, it's like the villain from Heat, but the story from Harry Potter and you haven't seen Heat, you know. Then you have no idea. The what's answer going on. is a lie. You're like, what's Harry Potter? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love Heat. Yeah, yeah. You Harry can definitely Potter. nod your way through that stuff. Um, yeah, no, you you, you can. <laughs> just FYI, everyone. Yeah, like, yeah, sure. <laughs> heat, of course. Michael I was just Mann. Talking to my manager about this thing. I, you know, the Darjeeling Limited meets Chronicle. This like mm-hmm. movie I'm I'm trying to figure out. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, but I I don't know. It doesn't really make sense. And I was like, have you seen Chronicle or any, you know anything about it? And he's like, no. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, that's why it doesn't make sense to you. Anyway, but so what they did in the intern program, which was really cool, is they surveyed all the interns. There was a lot of us, like 30 or 40. Um, and we had to go through that list and mark all the movies we had seen. Mm-hmm. And then the movies that the least people had seen, part of our internship was to watch. They would rent them and we would watch them. I think they had like the Netflix DVD thing at the time. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. And so I watched so many movies. Like I hadn't seen I Citizen Kane. I dollars doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't seen Casablanca. I hadn't seen all like Gone with the Wind. Like all these yeah. movies. Actually, I think I still might not have seen Gone with the Wind. But um, I was so passionate about filmmaking, but I had like... Very limited knowledge of mm-hmm. film, right. you know, culture, like and what films are and stuff. And so I had to really kind of work my way backwards. And it sounds kind of similar to what you're saying, which is you came in from this community place and had to find, like, from an artistic point of view, like why you cared about it. And you yeah. kind of landed in the documentary world because you care more about real stories 
maybe than made up stories. I just, uh, and, and the big thing for me, and, and this is something I wish I would have done, uh, of course, are those filmmakers who are really starting out here, who are listening to the podcast, who really want to learn. The thing that I just, I really just did last year was broke my big career and life goals into two main bullet points. And I love bullet points. They're mm-hmm. great. So what's so important just, just in life in general is you got to have a lighthouse. You got to know where you're going mm-hmm. and you got to set your course and you just got to, you got to put your head down and you just got to walk that way. And so last year I really narrowed down what I want to do. And it's, it's two main things. It's I want to travel the world mm-hmm. and I want to meet interesting people. And oh, so you're not talking about career goals. You're talking about life goals. This is also career goals. As a yeah. documentary director, you got to go somewhere <laughs> and you got to be talking and, and documenting someone who should be interesting. Mm-hmm. And so what other career really could fulfill those same two goals? And that's exactly why as soon as I, I narrowed that down, I put that filter through every project that I look at. Will this allow me to travel? Will this allow me to talk to interesting people and meet well, interesting people? You're That's welcome. It. You're welcome. Yeah, and this is a <laughs> yeah. part of it. And I don't care if I'm you know, the my feature film takes place in sure. Wichita, Kansas. I've been there five times over the last five years. I never thought I'd spend a day in Wichita, much less yeah, yeah. months. And so it does. It doesn't have to be Paris. It doesn't have to be Prague. I can just go somewhere new and meet someone interesting and get to know them and. That's why I really love what I do and what I'll continue to do because it will fulfill those two goals and I know those things make me happy. And so if I can make a paycheck while also checking those things off, I think we have found something that works. Wait, and so you came up with this life goal a year ago? This, I think, was probably things I already knew I liked, but it was about putting them into just like these are the things that I'm going to cross-reference whenever I work on something i think there's something incredible about like you you always had those goals you just maybe weren't able to articulate them for whatever reason exactly and then like to to really put the nail on the head of like these two simple things that's it uh that's a real gift you know like that's really i think a thing that people are always kind of striving for especially uh, a person who's like analytical and thoughtful in that way you know like i'm always looking at what my goals are and what they mean in the broader scope of of who i am and like my you know my google doc of of goals is is too long you know what i mean (laughs) like like there's no concise way of saying this is actually what i want you know what i mean and i think about it all the time yeah that's all yeah you ever think about when you're between projects yeah what's so important too is like also it's it's not just i feel like when you're young you kind of figure out what you like Mm -hmm. and as i've gotten older I figured out what I what I don't like, and that's just as important. When yeah. I had the realization, you know what? I don't like writing scripts, and I don't like directing narrative things, and I don't like directing actors, and everything else made sense. Yeah. And so you really have to just take a stand because I think you can, you can be – most people can be good at a lot of things. I think you have to choose what you want to be great at. Mm-hmm. And so when I really made a stand and said, hey, I really want to be great at documentary, and I'm going to – I I can edit a narrative thing. I can direct a narrative thing, but I'm going to choose not to because it's just leveling up parts of my character that I don't really care about. So let me challenge you on a few of these things. (laughs) Uh, Please do. Okay. So tomorrow, uh, someone from Shiat Day or whatever calls you and says, hey, we want you to direct 
It's a doc-style commercial for McDonald's. It looks like a doc, but it's fully scripted and it's fully with actors. Right, which is a pretty realistic sort of yeah. opportunity. And, uh, it's a lot of money. With. I, w- I, would, I would absolutely... And this is the kinds of projects that I've been presented with and I have had the opportunity to pitch. And I, I would absolutely say no because it's just a different... It's just okay, a we're different gonna, thing. They're going to pay you $100,000 to one-day shoot. <laughs> I mean, no, okay. no, no. Let, hold, let, let's actually let's make it more interesting. Let's. It's um, one hundred and ten thousand. It's half a day. It's twenty five thousand. Sure. So that's real money. That's my rate, or that's the whole budget. That's yeah. That's your rate. That's okay. your, yeah, yeah. That's the whole your rate. budget is uh, yeah, like half a million. Like half a million. Yeah. Sure. Uh, okay. Well, if it's a day, <laughs> and I don't have to do posts. I would hire a great DP yeah, who yeah. would take control of it, and I would just hang out and take sure, my paycheck. Sure, sure, sure. No, but you still have to direct the actors. You have to be on the client on the agency calls. You have I to- think you know what I would consider doing it, but I don't think the end product would be very good. And that's yeah. the thing that I really came to realize is that I had all these in every other circumstance. And and when I'm working with someone great like Eric, my production partner, who's just so brilliant and, and really great at that narrative stuff. When we worked on a project like that, that was more of a mm-hmm. narrative commercial or just something I didn't really care about. I was more of like a smash and grab guy where I'm like, let's just get this done. Let's get the money. Let's take all the shortcuts. Let's just get it over with. Are you guys and, dire- a directing team? Uh, that's something we kind of talked about initially and it was like, yeah, we'll co-direct things. But really I much prefer that Eric is the go-to director when we, when I'm helping him on a narrative thing, but I'm happy to chime in with suggestions and and Mm -hmm. I think I have good ideas, but I don't want to be the point person. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this actually, this circumstance, um, it came up uh, a couple weeks ago for this particular uh film project that we're working on it's a it's a 360 degree promo for a movie that's coming out and i'm working as a consultant and the producer said hey we're trying to find a director it's a narrative thing he's like do you want to direct this 360 thing and i was like no absolutely not and he was like okay all right he's like most people in hollywood they would say yes oh yes direct something yes absolutely of course right. i can do that even if they didn't really want to right and he's like i respect that you are very clear about what you don't want to do because even if it would have made me more money it would have been an unpleasant experience and i would have gotten a piece of content that doesn't reflect what i actually want to do and one of my things that uh, they say, you know, when you're a kid or whatever, like you are what you eat, like you hear that kind of thing in Hollywood or it really professionally uh, as a professional creative, the the mantra that I've really the the kind of the thing I've really learned is it's it's you are what you make. You mm-hmm. are sure you are the sum of the content you've created. So if you shot a bunch of doc style McDonald's commercials that you know but you want to direct like an incredible science fiction epic but you don't have something that proves you can do that you're probably not going to have the chance to do that until you make it so always consider everything that you create becomes a part of just of who you are who you've looked at as a professional so you really you are what you make and and always make sure you're creating content that is true to who you are and true to the next job you want to get yeah yeah i'm a poster child for that I like, you know, my favorite movies are like Fight Club and being John Malkovich and these kind of like heightened reality, psychological thriller D's. <laughs> um, and I did yeah. made this family sports film and I got like a manager and agents and everyone. And they're like, OK, great. What's the next project? And I was like, oh, I want to make like my Fight Club. And they're like, well, the movie you made has like nothing is like a hundred miles away from that. Go make another movie first. <laughs> and that's when that whole thing ended. 
And that's it. And since <laughs> over the last year or so, when I've really focused on dot commercials, I now have a body of work, you know, mm-hmm. uh, six different things I've done recently that I say, yes, this really is defines me as a creative and hey look at these other things i've made and before i'd make the mistake of pitching or showing clips that of things that eric and i had made together that were more narrative or more stunty Mm -hmm. and they were great and i loved working on them they really weren't the proper focus of who i was as a director myself right yeah i mean we talk about this on the podcast and something i've been struggling with myself a lot this past year is like finding your voice as a yeah. director, because and I feel like I say yes to too many things, and so like <laughs> if you look at my too website, many jobs, it's too many jobs. I just because I I went full time directing like two and a half years ago. So up until that point, I'd just been like, I could take a job or I could leave a job; it didn't matter. But once it became my livelihood, I I got that anxiety of like, well, I should say yes to everything. But and I so feel like you look you at my, have a distinct voice. Well, I, uh, you could, I could always say comedy, which is pretty clear, yeah. but that's a, still a pretty broad swath, right? So, like being able to say scripted comedy, relationship comedy, like you know, narrowing it down is the thing that I'm working on right now. And I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've like sent my website to someone and then been like, oh fuck, I hope they don't watch this video. Right, exactly, and and right. that's the same thing too, is where there'll be like a piece of content where I'm like, they're only going to think you're as good as the worst thing you sent. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be like, well, most yeah. of them are pretty good, but then there was well, that piece of shit. That one. That was yeah. good. No, that's <laughs> like, have you guys ever seen a DP reel where there's a, all this great stuff and then there's just like a couple shots that are so bad and you're like, I think DP reels are stupid. Or there's a DP reel DP. where it's clearly like, from two or three different videos and they're yeah, just yeah. reusing the same shots. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I get it. The girl running through the forest sure. in Golden Hour. That's great. Yeah, but yeah. I already saw yeah. two shots from that. No, we talked about this. Like, if you don't have <laughs> interior night stuff, I don't, I'm not going to, I don't yeah, care about yeah. your meal. Don't. Yeah. Because, yeah, we want to see how you use lights. Everything looks great at Golden Hour. So, so how did, so you said kind of you realized what you want to do and what you don't want to do. You want to travel places and meet interesting people. How does Indie Mogul fit into that? So uh, Indie Mogul for me is it's kind of like my kid. You know, it's something that I created uh, a long time ago and it means a lot to me and it means a lot to a lot of other people out there on the Internet. And the community has such value to me. And it's also something at this point that it's not like working for a client. I'm really working for myself. I'm an entrepreneur. I've uh, created apps. I've created websites. I've created communities. I've done all kinds of stuff. So I do have this entrepreneur slash documentary director thing. And then that's my kind of my duality. And and I'm able to do both. I'm able to multitask a lot. Uh, I... The way that Eric and I refer to each other, this are our nicknames or kind of our analogies for each other, is I call Eric the Death Star. The Death Star is this very slow moving, but incredibly powerful, single minded, focused mm-hmm. device. And it's like Alderaan, fuck you. Poof, and Alderaan's gone. That's it. Uh, but really, the Death Star needs someone to go tell it the next Alderaan to blow up. It's just not cruising around on its own, it's got a support staff. So my analogy is I'm like a bunch of squadrons of TIE fighters. Wait, does the Death Star move? I always thought it was Absolutely stationary. Absolutely moves. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely it moves. Yeah. It's got to go. It's got to move. It wasn't, it, they didn't just build like it out. light speed. But it yeah. didn't just build it outside of Alderaan. And they're like, <laughs> yeah. hey, what's going on over here? <laughs> <laughs> but why is it called the Death Star? Shouldn't we call it the Death Star ship? 
Anyway, I, th- I think stars, that's implied, right? Everything, everything in the universe moves. Yeah. <laughs> It's got okay. it's got yeah, some that's very a good point. it's got very yeah. basic propulsion, and so yeah. I'm like a, a bunch of squadrons of Death Star. Uh, excuse me, I'm a bunch of squadrons of Tie Fighters, and so there's a thousand over here, there's a hundred over here. I love multitasking, and I really to be satisfied, I need to be working on like three or four things at once. And Eric needs to be working on one thing at once because he's going to do that one thing, and he's going to do an incredible, fantastic job. And what we kind of discovered doing freelance work is that I'm, I'm sure you guys know, like working as a creative team, Eric would be the director and the pre-pro guy, and I was like the post-production supervisor, editor guy. So we would fight and beg for a project, we'd get it, and it would be like a month of super hard work for Eric, and then I'd be in post for like three months. And so we'd come out of the end of it, and we wouldn't know what our next project was because I had been too busy to go out right, and find right. the next thing for, for the Death Star to target. And why Indie Mogul is so great and so special is that it provides this rare circumstance where someone like Eric, who really just like he wants to have a job, he's someone who wants to know in another like a couple centuries ago, he would have been like an incredible artisan who would just like his job would be like, I make uh, this part of a bronze sculpture and this is just what I do all the time. And he would he is just that kind of guy. And I'm the opposite. Like, I don't want a full time job terrifies me i want to be always doing new stuff and i love launching things because launching things is so difficult but so rewarding so when the opportunity to relaunch any mogul came about i thought this is really perfect for eric he it's youtube is just this gaping maw that you can just throw content into forever and it's never satisfied and so for eric to have that's why he did he did indie mogul Every week, he did backyard effects every single week for, I think it was like two or three years, conceiving, shooting, editing, making a prop, writing a test film every week for two years straight. That's insane. That is insane. Wait, so but were you were doing it also? Or I was I was the head of the promos department, so I was in the midst of it, and I would help when I could. But my job was do a promo for this network. Do right. really, I was just sort of tangentially, and I really okay. wish I was more involved back in the day as well. So Indie Mogul and doing the new show, which is called Eric Builds the Movies and relaunching that, uh, I really, I realized it was the perfect opportunity to set Eric on this fantastic course that he's going to do so great at that I'm happy to help launch and of course be a part of as much as need be. But I know that in six months or a year when it's hugely successful and it can be Eric's full-time job, he knows that I'm going to go fly to Zimbabwe and shoot some doc thing sure, about, sure. you know, for Samsung or whatever. Like, I'm going to go do my thing. But right now, for the next couple months, I'm just so excited and so thrilled to launch this with him and create a sustainable business and something that people will just fall in love with again. And so that's why Indie Mogul comes into it, because I really... Eric is one of my, he's really my best friend and I love him and, I, and I'm so confident that the things he makes are fantastic and I just want to set that ship on its course and then hopefully make a little money later on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's, a, a, I think people when they're looking at their overall course, right, like you, people look at like, okay, this is my long term, this is my feature, so this is going to take a while. I've got a short film that I want to make. And I've got my day job, right? Like people kind of tend to divide things up that way. But then there's the other category that I think Just Shoot It falls into for us and Indie Mogul falls in for you guys. And I call it the anthill. And it's just like every week or day or what or month, whatever it is, you're just putting another grain of sand on it. 
and it doesn't take up all of your time, but it's a thing that you're slowly building. And then two years from now, you look back and you're like, oh, you've got a little mountain, right? So the the anthill is, is great to fall back on. And like, you know, when you're not sure of what you want to be doing or, you know, maybe you're in between things, you've always got that. And it's always, you're always investing your time in something that's going to pay off eventually. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, well, I don't know. To me, I look at Indie Mogul as a whole big show. Like to me, the podcast this podcast is like, sure. I just really wanted to different. make yeah. something. I used to, when I first started out on YouTube, I'd make videos all the time with my friends. My parents, I didn't care what they were like. I just put them up. We'd just constantly be making things. And, the, you know, it just happens to everyone. I think the longer you're kind of working in the entertainment industry, the more picky you get about what you make. And you start judging like, well, is it worth my time? Should I spend a month like making this short film and all this money? Like it's not worth it. And you start making less things. And when I met Matt, I was like, well, we were both like, this is like kind of the easiest thing we can make, like record a podcast like every week. We'll be making something and it'll make us feel good. You know, there's people I actually try to do this. It's called like the everyday project. Mm -hmm. Like someone, you know, let's say you want to learn Photoshop or Cinema 4D or After Effects or um, acting or whatever. You just say like every day I'm going to spend like 30 minutes, uh, you know, working on like making a Cinema 4D render and I'm going to upload it on a website and I'm going to have 365 of them at the end of the year. And then by the end of the year, I'll know Cinema 4D and they'll be really crappy, but I can only spend half an hour on it and I have to upload it every day. And so to me, that's a little bit the podcast, you know, it's yeah. like we hope people like it. And we hope it's helpful. But it's like to me, it's like authority because I just feel like at least I'm making something at least like if you Google our names, we've done something in the past month, you know. <laughs> Well, I think that's what's so fascinating about being a full-time freelancer out here in L.A. is that when you don't have that, like, regular workplace, sure. which can yeah. be such a social core, you need something that – you need kind of that glue. And uh, Channel 101, I kind of consider – I love Channel 101. Um, I kind of consider it, like – LA filmmaker church. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a super religious, conservative Midwest upbringing. And when I go to channel 101, I have the same feeling I had for better or worse. When I go to church, it's like a regular social gathering with people who have the sermon is the, the films that are playing. And it gives people who are kind of untethered to a regular social, mm -hmm. like a regular yeah. workplace experience, like a lot of freelancers. It gives you a core community to be involved with. And I get it. I get why sure. people in the Midwest or regular folks like, like going to church every Sunday, because it's something that you can say, this is my community I go to. And when honestly, like I'm a huge sports fan, when the Packers aren't playing on Sundays, I, I love having that. Like I watch the Packers on Sundays. Mm -hmm. It's like sure. some routine because I don't care if it's a, I work every day. I love it. I work every single day and it's great. But I've got no real schedule. And so having something like this, a regular creative outlet, and that's what I was talking to Matt about um, before we started, was just being able to kind of have a reason to hang out with people yeah. and get to know people. And it doesn't matter if it goes out to a million people or 10,000 or 50. Like it's an edifying experience. And you can say, hey, I made this and it's mine. And I, and I decided when it was done and here it is. And it's a, it's a piece of me. And I think that's really important. Yeah. And so you're, you and I are similar ages. You're married. I'm 22. Yeah. <laughs> some, like like some all of us of are 22. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're, you're married, yep. right? And so does that, how, like as you get older and more, 
closer to middle age in this industry. How, like, can you still go to Zimbabwe for a month and can you still work every day? And like, how does how does your personal life like mix into all this like crazy work life? Actually, I think it's great because I work from home. My commute is 15 feet from the bed to my computer. That's it. And my wife works from home as well. She actually runs a website that I started back in 2006 called onlinevideocontest.com. And that's been her full-time job for the last seven years. And so we love it. I mean, we spend all of our time together. It's, it's great. So if I am going somewhere for a long time, it's not like I'm working nine to five and we see each other for an hour or two and then I'm gone. I mean, we're spending almost all our time together anyway, so it's not like we don't see each other and then we don't see each other at all. It's like we're spending most right. of our time together and then whatever. I, I Most projects are, aren't going to be a month, you know, it's, it's going to be a week or maybe a little bit more, 10 days at the most. But she knows that's just a core of who I am. I just, I love traveling. I love traveling by myself. I love like things I think most people would really hate. And again, this is why I'm a doc director. Like I love like going to a party where I don't know anyone and our fe- film festivals. Like I went to Austria. The first, my film premiered in the Austrian Alps uh, last year. And I don't, everyone has Alps. I yeah. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't speak the language. I didn't know anyone. I just had a plane ticket and a place to sleep. And that first like night at that opening night party and all, I'm just hearing German everywhere. And I, I just kind of focused on the English and made friends and through it just met this incredible group of people. And those are the kinds of experiences where I love traveling with my wife, but if I'm somewhere by myself and I, and I have to be either forced to meet someone or be really bored. Oh my God. It's, it's great. Now that I think of it, we did meet at a party. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We met at a, a Tongle like that the Tongies, up. that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Tongies award show. <laughs> yeah. Tongle has its own award show. Yeah, absolutely. With, when they got like funding, oh, they were like, "Let's spend some money," and they did. And I <laughs> just you love... get salad tongs. Is that the... <laughs> yeah. there's an ice sculpture? It's great. It's beautiful. Yeah, uh, I just love. I love meeting people, and that is. And I love traveling alone. I love. I love traveling and working. I would much rather go on a, a working trip to shoot a commercial yeah. or a doc thing than just a vacation because i go crazy after two yeah. or three days of doing mm-hmm. nothing i i have to work because i love to work it's just like it, it, it's it's not a bad thing i feel like it's absolutely muscle memory it's so core creating and just being a part of making this content is so core to who i am that I was like at the doctor's office and she was like, write what you want to write. Like if you want to die, like if you're like on a machine and you want to like be unplugged, like I literally wrote like, if I can't make videos anymore, unplug me. That was like the thing. And she's like, that's not really what I want you. (laughs) She's like, that's nice. um, (laughs) If I can't like create, like, I don't know. That's, that is my whole thing. Yeah, no, I get you for sure. You know, it's funny because I feel like uh, I'm very different in that like, you know, I went to film school to meet people and like was like, ah, I'm at 15. I'm done. Right. <laughs> um, but I do. I did figure out that film festivals or like mixers, places where people are there to meet each other and you have film as the commonality. That was the way that I unlocked those experiences. And all of a sudden it wasn't like this intimidating thing anymore. You know what I mean? And I totally understand 
wanting to work and be on a vacation. Like you feel like you've earned the evening that way. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're at a film festival or you're shooting or whatever, then you can like unwind at night and it's just so much easier to not be thinking about the thousand things on your to-do list or on your goal sheet. You know what I mean? I had this very, this very deep moment when I was in New York and uh, living in the East Village, uh, walked up to uh, 10th and 2nd, and there's like a church over there. And I sat next to this old woman, and we just had this conversation about her life. Her husband had just died, and just uh, I was maybe 24 at the time, and we were just kind of talking about life. And um, I, I had this realization that, and it's really helped me be unafraid of death. We're going to get real deep here. Yeah. Unafraid of death. Because it's... I feel like when I'm like 80 or whenever and I'm like laying on my deathbed, uh, it's going to feel like those days, those days when you've had like you've been shooting for 14 hours and you really maxed yourself out and you've been directing something and you know you did your absolute best and you worked so hard. You woke up, you were there five minutes early, 15 minutes early. You directed, everything was perfect, everything was great and you're so satisfied with what you've done. And think of those nights when you go home and you're laying in your bed and you are just exhausted. You're wrung out because it's been a a day. The kind of intense days that we have as filmmakers are so above and beyond the nine to five that most people have. And you're laying in bed and, you know, you're not scared to go to sleep. You're satisfied. You're like, you know what? This has been a great fucking day and I'm going to sleep now. And I realized that that is the that's the way I want to live my life. And that's the feeling I want to have when I'm 80 or whatever it is. And I'm laying on my deathbed. I want to know I maxed my life out and I'm not going to be scared. I'm going to be tired and I'm going to feel satisfied. And I'm going to look back at what I did and think that, like, I did the best I could. And there's nothing scary about that. And if you live your life in a way where you're not maximizing your day and maximizing your, your time and you're living with regrets, then you may be a little freaked out. But those days we have as filmmakers, creative people, those long days and, and you're laying down, those are those are just some of my favorite moments where you earned it. And, you know, we're going to die and we're going to reboot and we'll be in our next thing or there'll be nothing or who cares. But it's not going to be scary. It's going to be nice. I've never been five minutes early to anything, so I can't yeah. wait. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's awesome. It's awesome to be so tired that you just close your eyes and you're asleep and you feel accomplished. What That's sucks it. is when you have to shoot the next day. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's what a 12-hour turnout is for, right? Yeah. <laughs> so just to, to finish up our talk with you, maybe we can dive into like the craft of doc commercial making real quick. Like how, how do you make a documentary in like 30 to 60 seconds? Well, I mean, most of the work I do is is a little bit longer form. You know, it's like two minute stuff that goes in the web uh, that can be cut down. But a lot of times, like the thing, especially now with the Internet, is that authenticity is just so key. And when brands do fake documentary stuff, it just really rings false. And so brands more and more are looking for a truly authentic, hey, here's, you know, I've done work for Cheerios and Fiat and Lego and people like that. And they want to profile their customers and people who love their brands in a really authentic way. So I found that more times than not, 
they really like shy away from overtly commercializing it. Like there'll be a couple beauty shots, but they want to kind of just get the story of the customer who really mm-hmm. likes the product. And so that's what's been really nice because I choose projects that are seeking authenticity like that and I'm not faking a McDonald's commercial. I just kind of get to do my thing and really like it's more about the personalities that are attached to these brands versus Mm -hmm. the actual like, hey, I love eating Cheerios. Like I did a commercial for gluten-free Cheerios and the brand wanted me to cut out all the stuff about how excited they were about gluten-free Cheerios and put in other stuff. They really just wanted right. it to be more pure. And that's kind of my sweet spot. So it's not like a real scripted pandering commercial. Hopefully they do love the brand. So it's easy to get those kinds mm-hmm. of moments. But you're really just capturing a story that happens to, you know, they happen to drive a Fiat or they happen to be, right. there happens to be gluten-free Cheerios coming out. And that's great because they're, uh, they have celiac disease, you know, that yeah, kind of yeah. thing. I feel like actually it'd be pretty easy to find people who were stoked on gluten-free oh, Cheerios. Yeah. Yes. Especially in East LA. Where <laughs> yeah. we live. Is there, there's a campaign right now. I think there's two campaigns, one for GMC and one for Chevy where they have real people like send uh, emoticons describing a car they see or just getting super excited about all the features that a new Chevy has compared to a Prius whose technology is like 10 years old. Have you seen any of those? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, oh, they're just like I'm people- really curious to see if they're real or not. They're kind of like set up as focus groups. Mm-hmm. I don't oh, know. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I've seen that. And it's like, it's like, um, what do they say? There's like a little disclaimer on the bottom. It's like real people, not actors. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, are you saying actors aren't real people? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. I love well, that. How did you get them there then? You they know, know there's cameras. Yeah. Because those things feel yeah. so edited to me. Oh, absolutely. And so is your stuff also like that? I mean. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I really pers- I like look at just trying to document like a real day in someone's life and, and, you know, try to find these touch point, like these big moments, like for the capital one spots, it was about small business owners. And that's something that I really relate to because I am a small business owner and I've started businesses. And so I just really love that entrepreneurial spirit. And it was about a guy who made ravioli rolling pins. And it was all about just this, he had a dream and created a product and he talked a little bit about banking, um, but that was kind of it. So, And how do you find big moments? You have one day to shoot with this guy that makes ravioli pins. How do you find yeah. big moments? Well, we, we had two days, and I really just kind of asked, like, you know, what he was going to go to a factory, tour a factory that was going to make these ravioli pins. He was went to a store. He was trying to get his particular product in these, like, local stores. Tried to identify, like, what are moments that he would be doing anyways that we can mm-hmm. kind of, we just tag along moments that have intrinsic drama to them. Is he going to be able to get his product in this store? How, mm-hmm. is, how is this manufacturing plant going to work out for him? That's what I love about, about doc is that uh, you just kind of, you are in a situation that has like a, a set, like good or bad, or mm-hmm. the narrative of morning, afternoon, and night is a narrative everyone knows. And so you just film and you create the story from that. And how do you get your subject to be comfortable with like the lavalier microphone and the cameras and the lights? Yeah, that's a big thing where, um, again, it goes back to me trying to really concentrate on doing the things that I feel like I'm really great at. Mm -hmm. There's this really magical moment that I love when you're talking to someone 
and there's a camera crew and there's lights. And it's the moment where all those lights and the crew and my documentary, I'm talking to people in kind of small urban area of Wichita, like kind of rundown area. And these people aren't used to talking to filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And the moment when you're just people talking to each other and they forget about the cameras, they forget about the lights. Uh, it's just this growing up in the Midwest. I think people just feel comfortable with me <laughs> and that's something that I really love. I just really love connecting to people like that. And I don't know if I can really pinpoint exactly what it is. If it's a chemical thing, if it's, I have calming blue eyes, I have no idea, <laughs> but it's that letting someone feel comfortable and not worry about that stuff and just kind of loosen up. That is, um, I don't know if there's a particular technique, but it's something I feel like I'm very, very good at. And that's why the kinds of content I make in that realm come off as very genuine because right. I'm able to make people feel comfortable in conversation. Cool. It's just kind of an attribute. And some people just, yeah. and again, it's like a great narrative director is going to have those, those intangibles that mm -hmm. make them there's certain things you can quantify and qualify, but there's a lot of intangibles. That's just a vibe thing. And they're going to know how to work with the actors and other. So things just like to that. say what you just said in an extreme way, you don't think it's something you can learn. It's just something that's inherent, whether you're good with actors or comfortable with people. I think that you can learn it to an acceptable degree, but I think that with any, like an athlete, you know, there is a certain just physiological, Aaron, I'm a huge Packers fan like Aaron Rodgers just he could have been great at a lot of things but he just happened to be made in a genetic way that <laughs> made him Makes great him at football superstar, right? so I yeah. feel like you can get really or even just like uh, LeBron James playing basketball whatever it is like right but you're talking built, about a physicality versus uh, a but way I think to that's a, I think that's people. a part I think you can learn your way to be very very good but I think that and and maybe then like if it's just learned and it's not just like a passion or really like a true thing, I think that you just kind of miss a piece of it. But I've always loved talking to people. I've always loved meeting people. It's something that I didn't have to go to school for it. I've just been doing it my whole life. So the fact that it's my career isn't an accident. It's a choice, but it's always been a choice that makes the most sense for who I am and who I've always been. Right. I didn't go to school. Like if I went to school for mathematics, it'd be something that I could learn, but it, I, I'm terrible at math and it would be like, right. I can get to a certain point, but I feel like you just kind of go with any filmmaker, any creative person who's starting out, find the thing that makes you the least uncomfortable. That's the most satisfying and continue pursuing your way towards that. And I think you'll find something that, you'll kind of hit that sweet spot. And for me, that's what doc directing is. I mean, do you think, Matt, would you agree that you can't, like there's something innate in being able to talk to actors and people and like an instinctual thing? Because I, I guess I always think yeah. I'm like afraid for that to be true because I think I'm fine with actors and I think I've, there's certain actors that I connect with and we, I'm, mm -hmm. you know, I come from sure. like a really analytical place. So when a scene's not working, I'm very comfortable saying like, okay, this doesn't seem to be working. Let's figure out how to make it work. But I'm not one of those directors that's like, just look at me, you know, the make love to the camera type <laughs> right, of guy, right. like the yeah. passionate, emotional. I'm like much more analytical. And I always like think about Woody Allen, who's like infamously doesn't talk to his actors at all right. and gets, sure, he gets some questionable performances, but he also gets these, you know, a lot of sure. people say it's like the, all the work is in the casting, you know? Yeah, I, you know, I think that there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat, ultimately. And so I think that 
you're, of course, going to lean into whatever tactic works the best for you. You're going to embrace, of course, right? That being said, I feel like, you know, Woody Allen, if he was better at talking to people like Justin is, maybe he would do that more and not worry so much about, you, you know what I mean? Like, I think there the beauty of filmmaking which is kind of different than, you know, things that are maybe a little bit more linear is that there's there's so many different pathways and that's what's wonderful about it, right? Like Steven Spielberg is different than Martin Scorsese, right? They're two like living legends, but they make such drastically different movies and that's because of the way that they were raised and the things that they're naturally good at and all of those different circumstances that create a unique artist. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think also it's... um. A, a lot of people can learn to do something, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're good at it. That was a thing for me that was really intimidating when I first moved to Los Angeles, coming from New York, where you go to a party and you're like, I make movies in New York. And they're like, you make movies? I work at a bank. <laughs> yeah, Tell me sure. all about it. You're this beautiful snowflake. And in L.A., of course, that's not not the, the case everyone is in the industry generally and no one's impressed when you're like, I'm a <laughs> <Right>. filmmaker. <laughs> what? They're all like, they're no, really like, guys. oh, really? They're like, like yes, we have a whole room mean? for you yeah. guys. Just go yeah. crowd over there. So and, what's your day job? Right, uh, <laughs> right, exactly. So I was really concerned. I'm like, you know, I, it's going to be very intimidating. And um, we had this, we're doing this little silly internet short paying, you know, a very low rate and uh, trying to cast like a female lead. And we put it up on Actors Access or whatever and had like 750 responses. And so I just was looking Actors at Actors Access is a casting website for yeah. those that don't know. I, I was looking at people's actors' video reels. And so this is the best stuff that they've made. And like 80% of it was just like terrible. And maybe 10% was okay and 5% was really good and 1% was great. And I realized that just because more people do something somewhere doesn't mean more people are good at something somewhere. Sure. Yeah. So I think that you can learn your way and you can book your way and into a percentage there. But I think that um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be good. So I think just because you can learn something doesn't mean you're going to be good at it. Plenty of people will be good at it. But again, it's just the difference between good and, and great and I, I don't ever consider my work like it's great. Uh, other people tell me it's good and I'm like, that's that's wonderful. Uh, my mantra is that I'm always I'm always happy, but I'm never satisfied. And so I'm always happy with my work, but I never think it's the greatest thing I can ever do. And I'm never like, yep, I've done it. That one's done. Now I'm done right. with filmmaking. I did everything <laughs> I needed to I'm do. I'm like, that show. was fine. Like I did a good job. Like, cool. But there's the always next the next right. thing, the yeah. next challenge. And I think when you're satisfied, it's kind of when it's over. Well, I believe in that whole, like, movies are never finished. They're just abandoned. Because you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you can always, it's like getting it to 90% satisfaction is not that hard. But getting it to, like, 94% is, like, really hard. It is. Right? Yeah. It's... Uh, it's a tough industry. If you're listening to yeah. this, leave. <laughs> but I'm so happy no. doing what, I, what I'm best, doing. And yeah. you don't ever have, I feel like you don't have a choice. Yeah. Yeah, you don't. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I'd, I'd like to think that there are naturals. I mean, you. not that I've read the game or anything, but, you know, I think like there's like those pickup artists, right? Like there's the naturals that are just people that are just comfortable in a room and can meet, you know, men that can meet girls and do well with them 
And then <laughs> there's the guys that have to study these psychological tricks mm. and deceiving, right? And nagging people and like insulting them to the right degree and touching them in a certain way. I mean, it's like insane stuff, but they can get kind of similar results, yes. right? To these naturals. And I think I, I'd like to think. Is that a term? Is yeah. that a, you know, the, ter- the naturals are just. Naturals are like how they built that whole system wow. of pickup artists is they they studied people oh they my studied God. men that are very good especially a bunch of fucking psychopaths yes that, that is, is creepy. insane <laughs> well it came it came out of actually like originally like studying autistic people and like trying to figure out ways to connect with them you know like trying to match their speaking pattern trying to match their breathing rate trying to figure out what the eye contact means and touch sure, means sure. and how it affects people and through a lot of like psychological research that that scientists did on that, there was this guy named Ross Jeffries that basically took it and tried to apply it to influence right. normal non autistic people. Right, it's called like NLP, neuro linguistic programming, like things that you can say to suggest things to certain people to convince them to do certain things. Wow! And then he's like, "Well, let's see if we can get this to you know men that traditionally have trouble with women. Let's see if we can help them manage to get." women to talk to them and and think of them as not just like a slubby guy at a bar but like a guy that i excites me you know and fancy literally, hats just wear sure. a really fancy hat <laughs> yeah peacocking that is peacocking right yeah um, I, I think maybe the the other way to think of it though is that i i think there's a way for a person to who maybe isn't naturally good at shot composition or vfx to kind of like figure out a way to become better at those things right just like, uh, you know, a person who maybe wants to psychologically manipulate a potential partner could do that, <laughs> right? But, but I think that there are, uh, just like in relationships, there's a lot of different ways that you can be attractive or appealing to someone. And like intentionally <laughs> insulting a woman is one way to get them to like you. But there's probably a couple other ways that you're naturally more inclined to do. Do you know what I mean? I think that's that's kind of the... The thing that's tricky is that the pickup artist implies that there's one way to get people to like you. No, Do you know what no. I, mean? I, I think kind of, I guess, to just to counter what Justin's mm-hmm. saying, which is there's some instinct about working with actors. Like if you, I think a lot of directors, especially ones that come from technical, a technical background, like right. me, that are like really into cameras and really into lenses and really into editing and computers and all that stuff. And we're like scared to death to talk to actors. I, you know, I wouldn't say like, well, if you don't feel comfortable talking to actors, then you're never going to be able to make a good movie. Certainly not. Yeah. Um, I'm, I don't think David Fincher like, is comfortable talking to actors. Right. Well, right. David Or George Fincher, Lucas. I mean, even you know? freaking, what's his name? Alfred Hitchcock was famous yeah. to have not liked actors, right? And so to me, it's like, it, yes, of course, if you're like a natural, you know, you know, Drake Doremus, he's this director. He did Like Crazy okay. um, and, and some other movies. I kind of know him. And he, everyone says, I mean, he's, you know, he's an interesting guy, but everyone says that the way he talks to actors, just like he connects with them, like in an instant. And he says these things to them and it, they all of a sudden are like so inspired. And that is like the exact opposite of me where I'm like, can you just <laughs> sure. do it like a little faster? Maybe it's like we're having trouble seeing. Faster you know? and louder. Isn't that the yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> More well, intense. Like TV I mean, and again, I come yeah. from a very uh, a biased place. I was kicked out of school for bad grades. I got a 0.8 GPA. And I never went to film school. I went to school for design. I'm very like the opposite side of the coin of the educational system. 
So I'm sure you can learn your way to be really great. Sure, but sure. that's not my experience. <laughs> yeah, you, again, you just leaned into what you were great at, right? It's like okay, like you know how to talk to people, so do that. But I, I think that you know, uh, you don't have to talk to people if you want to make you know 3D animated films, yeah. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? And I think you can lean on. I think kind of to bring everything we're saying together is it's like you find your strength and you learn right. all the things around. It. You know, like. There's amazing documentary filmmakers that don't know what the difference between a 50 millimeter lens and a 14 millimeter lens is probably, you know, but to them, that's not important, like you were saying. So I think it's if you can get excited about what you're making, whether it's because you're excited that you get to travel and meet new people or whether it's because you get excited about visual effects or whether you get excited about, you know, being famous, rich or whatever it is that excites you, like if you can be excited about it, I think. That's really all it takes and everything else you can figure out if you are excited enough about it. So. Absolutely. It's got, I mean, you, you got, you got to love it. Yeah. Well, I think it might be that time. Yeah. Unpaid endorsements. So I'll go uh, first real quick. This is kind of a, a resource that I've been using a lot lately. It's called short of the week. Uh, just go to short of the com and you can check out uh, an incredible list of short films curated by guys who I think actually maybe started at Vimeo, but every single week they put up a great short film, all different genres and styles. Some of them are funny. Some of them are docs. Some of them are animated. Uh, It's really incredible, but their taste is impeccable and it's a really great place. If you're like, you know, feeling like you want to procrastinate for a couple minutes, uh, you will definitely be inspired by whatever they are posting, shortoftheweek.com. And are they like the type of shorts where like someone made that short and they got a studio film out of it or a TV job or an agent or something? Like- um, oftentimes, oftentimes, but it could also be something where it's just a good little short. You know, I think what you were talking about, like there are some VFX driven shorts. They do lean on things that have like a heavier hand stylistically. It's not dissimilar to the Vimeo staff 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 picks. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's a little bit more tightly curated than that, but like it's like an online film festival. So you can submit, you know, for like 25 bucks or whatever you submit your film and then they will run, you know, one if they like it basically. Mm, Cool. It's pretty great. So my, my turn. Justin, yeah, you ready sure. to go? Uh, so I'm going to endorse Steez. It's a natural energy drink. Uh, <laughs> it is great. How uh, do you, Steez, how do you spell it? S-T-E-A-C. Okay. Steez. And how I came about it was about five years ago, they wanted to do a promotion with one of my websites. And they bought $500 worth of ads, but said, hey, can we send you product instead of money? And I was like, okay, sure. (laughs) And so all of a sudden I had $500 worth of this energy drink sitting in my closet. And I brought it to every shoot we did for two years. And um, a lot of it is each one cost $500, uh, like a dollar or two. So it was like 500 to maybe 300 cans of this energy drink <laughs> and i was just texting with i have a shoot on saturday and the producer's like buy whatever you whatever you want justin let me know what you want and uh i was like you know what steez <laughs> and so i've had two different producers text me what flavor of steez i want and it's kind of like a joke like we we really sure. actually do love it but it's super rando and we really want to do a spec ad where it's like the steez farmer farming steez berries anyways if you come across steez 
organic green berry. It's uh, phenomenal. So, Steve's. <laughs> That's and awesome. Keep keep your eyes peeled for Justin's yeah. uh, new docu series. Yes, huh? the fake docu Steve's berries. <laughs> Steve's berries. Oh shit! I actually was gonna also <laughs> endorse something totally random and nonsensical like that, which are these like gummy vitamin multivitamins I take every day. I like. I've always like kind of wanted to take vitamins, but I always forget to. But my wife got these like gummy bear ones. They're like really delicious. I like. I'm always eating too many vitamins. <laughs> should check those out. Vitamin THC. Um, <laughs> but the other thing is, uh, I saw this thing. You guys probably saw it. It's kind of all over the internet this week. But it's called the hypothetical blockbuster budget, and they basically made this video where it's the end credits of a 200 million dollar movie, and they show how much every person in that that worked on that movie made. And it's, you know, it's not that surprising. There are some, like, the production designer made, like, close to a million dollars. The cinematographer made, like, half a million dollars. There's some people that work on these $200 million movies that you probably have never heard of that are making a lot of money. Right. I only cared about the director line, which was $4 million, so... How much for, like, the the writers? The writers? Well, so, like, almost all $200 million movies, there was more than one writer. Uh, I believe that the first one, let's pull it up right now... Uh, the director made $4 million. The EPs make around a million dollars each. And the producers as well. The writers, the first one, $3.2 million, then 900000 And then wow. goes, then 250000 for the third guy that just like polished. Just for writing words? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they just made it up. They just made it up from nothing. The uh, editor, 924500 That one, That one surprised me. I was like, oh, dang. Yeah, but you think about a $200 million movie, they probably worked on it for like three years don't you think yeah yeah, yeah. two or three years yeah and, th- and i think that's the big point to make like on a big movie like that some people get to come in and just drop in for a couple weeks and they shoot and then they're out and then some people it's like you know it could represent five years of their lives the vfx supervisors are doing yeah. like r&d and stuff so i think the vfx supervisor made close to a million dollars but it's probably over like three or four years yep. so the highest paid vfx supervisor in the the world is probably making like two hundred fifty three thousand three hundred thousand dollars a year, yeah. unless he I owns part so. of the VFX company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which I is not. So. Yeah, I mean, not anywhere near as much what like the top guys in like Wall Street make. Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> and I, I think also there that just explains why people create their own companies, right? You know, like if you're the top VFX guy, and yeah, you you're spending money on R and D, but you've built out this infrastructure of like you're pumping out a ton of movies all at once, or you know, uh, scaling up and down, I think that's where the real money is, right? Yeah, I think there is a real problem. I mean, you know, I, I can talk all day about problems with the VFX industry, <laughs> but it's, uh, they don't make, they're very sure. low margins and it's a, it's a problem because everyone wants to put VFX in everything and yeah, there's just like, a difficulty that exists that's hard to overcome. Well, I watch mean, any mogul and it's just easy. There you go. Just, yeah. just, you'll find, it. You'll find <laughs> I was, it. I mean, Rhythm and Hughes won the Oscar for Best VFX uh, for Life of Pi and went bankrupt that, yeah, same, that same year. year. I think they yeah. and they were nominated for like another movie that same year as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of indie mogul, obviously people can check out indie mogul on YouTube, but can you tell us how to see your duck? Yes. Um, so you can go to double digits doc, doc.com. And the title is Double Digits, the story of a neighborhood movie star. Very inspiring film that any young filmmaker or anyone who, any creative person that's ever had a dream is beyond just filmmaking. I think they'll find this film really inspiring. It's on iTunes, it's on Amazon. Type in double digits and is you it should find free it. if you have Amazon Prime? 
Uh, not yet. Okay. But uh, my credit cards suggest you rent it for three ninety nine. <laughs> and is sorry. So what's the logline, real quick? You're following. so it's um it's a documentary about this really inspiring fifty two year old guy who makes these hour long YouTube blockbuster films. He's this fifty two year old African American who's like chubby and bald and missing teeth, and he works when he's not making these incredible like hundred million dollar action blockbuster films that he does for zero money and literally plays every character he works from 1 a.m to 1 p.m serving food in a prison so imagine the most bleak job and having the most incredible creative life in just this tiny he's kind of like an art hermit he lives in this tiny little apartment Mm. and just it's all dolls and action figures and him on green screen with these crazy costumes uh, and so it's really a story about a guy who just never, he's been making movies ever since he was a teenager and just never gave up. And Double Digits is his answer to my question, how many views on YouTube until you consider your film a success? These films take him six months to nine months to make, and every single frame is very handcrafted by him. More than nine views, and he considers it a success. <laughs> and I was just like, that's, that's incredible. Awesome. So it's a must-watch for any any creative person and it's a it's a it's a real sticky movie that will just inspire you. You just have no excuse when you see him. You're like, I have no excuse not to create. And he's a great guy. Cool. And uh, can we follow you on Twitter or anything like that? Snapchat. Or no? Snapchat? You know, yeah. Indie Mogul Snaps uh, is our Snapchat account. Uh, Justin Superstar. You'll find me most places um, around there. And I've just been posting a lot on Indie Mogul. So IndieMogul.com. You'll find all our social stuff. And um, hopefully you check it out. Great. Well, if you want to learn more about all the things that we talked about, check out our show notes at justshootitpod.com. You can follow me at Mr. Madanlo. And me at Smitey Pileg. This episode was edited by Eric Cripo. Thanks, Eric. Music still by Steve Combs. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> See you later. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.